Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering. Today, looking forward to a conversation with Kevin Palau. He is the president and CEO of the Louise Palau Association on Together PDX. They're sponsoring uh, Together 2023, which includes worship on the waterfront, a summer of service, as well as uh, prayer for the city. We'll talk about all of those events taking place over the course of this summer and how you can get involved. He'll be joining me in the second hour of today's program. But if you can't wait, go to the website togetherpdx.org and you can find all the important details. That uh, conversation coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also, some words about words, their importance and whether or not they have meaning. That's coming up in the second hour as well. Well, the Oregon Department of Transportation is among many organizations affected by a data breach. You may have heard about it today. Inflicted by a global hack of the data transfer software, Move IT Transfer. Well, the Department of Transportation data includes personal information for approximately 3.5 million holders of Oregon ID or driver's licenses. Well, since 2015, the Department of Transportation in the state of Oregon has used this transfer service. A popular file sharing tool was created and supported by Progress Software Corporation. It allows organizations to securely transfer files and data between business partners and customers, or at least it did. Well, on Thursday, the 1st of June, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, they issued a zero-day vulnerability alert stating that uh, they had released a security advisory for Move it, I, Move IT transfer and that the software had a vulnerability which could allow an attacker to take over an affected system. The Oregon Department of Transportation says that they moved very quickly to secure their systems and they're confident that they're working safely. However, it's not clear whether or not it was breached at some point, and we need to be made aware. The Oregon Department of Transportation worked closely with the state cybersecurity services, engaged in a third-party security specialist for analysis, and the analysis identified multiple files shared via Move IT Transfer that were accessed by unauthorized actors before they received the security alert. Uh, as of Monday, June the 12th, they confirmed that the accessed data contained personal information, again, for approximately 3.5 million Oregonians. And while much of this information is available broadly, some of it's sensitive personal information. They don't have the ability to identify it uh, if any specific individual's data has been breached. Um, each of us uh, will have to... Um, uh, who have an active Oregon ID or driver's license would have to assume information related to that ID is part of the breach. So you assume, yes, it was hacked and I'm part of that. If you think you may have been affected, uh, here's what you need to know. According to the Oregon Department of Transportation, under federal law, you have the right to receive at your request a free copy of your credit report every 12 months from each of the three consumer credit reporting companies. A credit report can provide information about uh, those who have received your credit history, and you can request a free credit report online, annualcreditreport.com. When you receive your credit reports, check for any transactions or accounts that you do not recognize. And if you see anything that you don't understand, call the telephone number listed on the credit report or visit the Federal Trade Commission's website, and they can help walk you through it. Uh, again, the Oregon Transport- Oregon Department of Transportation uh, data was accessed as part of a global Move IT 
hack. So be aware. Business is resuming on the Oregon Senate floor today for the first time in six weeks as Democrats and Republicans reached an agreement marking the end of the longest legislative walkout in state history and the second longest in U.S. history, according to the Associated Press. Well, after taking roll call, the Oregon Senate reached a quorum of 20 lawmakers with the GOP senators who returned to Salem, Uh, says uh, Senate President Rob Wagner. I'm encouraged that we were able to come to an agreement that will allow us to finish and the important work Oregonians sent us here to accomplish. We have achieved major bipartisan victories already this season, uh, this session, and I expect that to continue now that we have um, returned to the floor. I am grateful for all the senators who listened to each other and sought an end to this walkout while protecting Oregon's priorities and values, end quote. Well, Senate Republican leader Ted Knope also released a statement. Senate Republicans and independents stood firm as the last line of defense for parental rights and the rule of law. I am incredibly, uh, incredibly proud of their steadfast determination to give their constituents a long overdue seat at the table. We have said from the very beginning that we cannot allow uh, the Senate to operate in an unlawful, uncompromising and unconstitutional manner. We repeatedly urged Democrat leaders to put the critical needs of all Oregonians first instead of prioritizing an extreme agenda that does nothing but divide us. I am pleased to say that we were able to hold the Democrat majority accountable and accomplish all these things. We achieved constitutional, lawful bipartisanship and parental rights were restored. Well, Senate Republicans have agreed to provide a quorum For the remainder of the legislative session, according to the news release from the offices of Senate President and the House Speaker. Well, the news um, release provided details about some of the agreements that legislative leaders made in regards to the uh, the bills that are pending. Uh, House Bill 2002 will receive a vote after being clarified to ensure that the bill affirms standard abortion care that has been in place for 50 years under Roe versus Wade, but was jeopardized by the Dobbs decision. This is I'm quoting. It will establish provider protections against uh, pro-life and uh, anti-transgender laws in other states and require that health insurance covers medically necessary gender affirming care. Apparently, that's the agreement on House Bill 2002. House Bill 2005 will receive a vote as it was uh, introduced to make um, our community safer by banning intractable ghost guns. A workshop will be available, will be established rather to study policy solutions to gun violence and suicide prevention. And $10 million will be invested in the community violence prevention program. They also talked about House Joint Resolution 33 and Senate Bill 27 referred back to committee and conversations on how to enshrine Oregon values in the Constitution. That will um, continue in the interim. House Joint Resolution 16 would give Oregon voters the opportunity to amend the state constitution to give the legislature the power to hold statewide elected officials accountable via impeachment. This uh, change will align Oregon with every other state in the country. Also, House Bill 2757 would substantially fund 988, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number that was launched in Oregon in the summer of last year. And Republican senators joined by one independent began uh, shunning the chamber on the 3rd of May to deny a quorum, ensuring that no bills could be passed as long as the walkout endured. It endured until today. Well, negotiations between leadership, both the Democrat and Republican, hit a wall as neither side appeared willing to budge on House Bill 2002. The governor intervened, continued talks with Republicans for for a time, but she eventually acknowledged that she'd reached a similar impasse. 
there is some kind of an agreement at this point, and uh, we'll continue to follow what happens in the remaining days of the Oregon legislative session. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Kevin Palau. We're going to be talking about Together 2023. It'll culminate with an event on the waterfront. That's coming up on the 23rd of July. All the details coming up later in today's program. Well, at KPDQ, we want to help you make your Father's Day celebration extra special this year. And this is the last day you can do that. Enter now. And if you're our grand prize winner, you'll receive $2,000 in cash for dad. And to increase your chance to win, you can enter once every day, which means um, um, now through the 15th, plus some complete um, other activities as well. Today is the last day, so you might need to rush if you want to do that today. But today is the last day. For the Father's Day campaign. Well, the U.S. District Court has ruled that Seattle must uh, temporarily cease enforcement of property crimes with regard to graffiti. A judge of the U.S. District Court of the Western District of Washington issued a preliminary injunction saying the city's ordinance that punishes graffiti targets uh, speech and poses a real and substantial threat of censorship. Now, graffiti graffiti on uh, private property Is that free speech that's protected? Uh, Isn't the private property right? Doesn't that trump the defacement of one's private property? Well, on its face, the ordinance sweeps so broadly that it criminalizes innocuous drawings from a child's drawing of a mermaid to pro-police messages written by the Seattle Police Foundation that can hardly be said to constitute visual blight and which would naturally wash away in the next rainstorm. So maybe it's the language of the uh, of the bill the senate police department released a statement to address the court's ruling stating that a lack of future enforcement is not a conscious decision by the government late yesterday afternoon they received an order form from the u.s district court judge that enjoined in full enforcement of the uh, city's misdemeanor property destruction law again property destruction is not a temporary message chalk on the sidewalk by a kid but nonetheless apparently it wasn't clarified in the uh, in the law, the department continued. This means that until further order of the court, uh, the Seattle Police Department cannot take action on damage to property under this law. This is not a matter within the police department or city discretion. We are bound by the court order as it is written. My guess is that will be revisited at some point sooner rather than later if they deal with the blight of um, unauthorized tagging all around the city of Seattle, as we do here. Well, the Supreme Court might strike down the precedent itself later this year. I'm talking about the House striking a blow against federal regulations, a vote to overturn a controversial Supreme Court ruling. The House voted Thursday to overturn a 1984 Supreme Court ruling that Republicans say gave the executive branch too much power to impose regulations that cost Americans trillions of dollars every year. Well, lawmakers approved the Separation of Powers Restoration Act, or SOPRA, In a mostly party line vote, no surprise there, 2020 to 2011, Republicans have argued for the last several years that the Supreme Court precedent set by the Chevron USA Inc. versus Natural Resource Defense Council Inc. uh, It was a case that effectively told courts that they should defer to federal agencies when they interpret laws passed by Congress as they write regulations. Republicans say that since that ruling, courts have failed to do their due diligence in assessing whether those regulations can be fairly justified under the law, whether or not they're being uh, rightly interpreted. Well, the lawmakers 
Or I should say the lawmaker singular who sponsored SOPRA, Representative Scott Fitzgerald, Republican out of Wisconsin, argued on the House floor today that the Supreme Court ruling has given the executive branch vast authority to regulate as it pleases and often in ways that contradict the intent of Congress. Since 1984, when the Supreme Court ruled that courts must defer and to an agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute rather than what Congress intended, the executive branch has begun usurping the legislative branch to issue regulations with the force of law. Fitzgerald went on to say, it is uh, certainly not what our founders intended. He added that the cost of these regulations have piled up on Americans over the last several decades. The total annual cost of regulation is almost $2 trillion, or about 8% of the U.S. GDP. If it... Um, If it were a country, for comparison, U.S. regulation would be the world's eighth largest economy. Just the regulation. Another Republican, Representative Thomas McClintock of California, said the Supreme Court ruling goes against the intent of the Constitution, which sets out so that Congress writes the laws while the executive branch carries them out. One um, brother makes law but cannot enforce it. The other brother enforces law but cannot make it, he said. Well, Democrats said overturning the Supreme Court decision would force the courts to take on considerable work as they try to interpret federal law. Representative Nadler of New York, the top Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee, said the bill would completely upend the administrative process by eliminating judicial deference to agencies and require federal courts to review all agency rulemakings and interpretations of statute on a do no vote basis. Nadler also said Congress defers to agencies to do the work of deciding specific regulatory policies because it does not have the expertise to do that job. Now, the question isn't whether or not the agencies uh, should be charged with implementing what Congress has passed. But if they reinterpret those laws and the executive branch uh, takes advantage of the provision the Supreme Court allowed and reinterprets the laws or passes uh, new executive actions that contradict or conflict with what Congress has already passed. These members of the uh, House are suggesting that is in and of itself unlawful. We'll continue to follow that story as the Supreme Court will very likely end up taking up the issue of their own interpretation. A top federal watchdog agency is opening an investigation into the impacts of offshore wind along the New Jersey coastline with calls for a moratorium on development and an uptick in marine wildlife deaths namely whales. In a phone call Thursday afternoon, the Government Accountability Office, a nonpartisan uh, agency tasked with conducting oversight of government operations, informed Representative Chris Smith that it would conduct the probe. Smith, who represents the district along the Atlantic coast, has repeatedly called for the GAO investigation into offshore wind development, expressing concern about its potentially wide-ranging impact on wildlife and the marine economy. They have now agreed Yes, we will do just that. A government watchdog group is filing a federal lawsuit against the Federal Aviation Administration, arguing the agency has stonewalled records detailing Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's use of private government jets. The group, Americans for Public Trust, said it has repeatedly requested FAA records detailing how often Buttigieg has used the agency's small fleet of jets and the taxpayer costs associated with those flights. But according to its lawsuit, first seen uh, by Fox News Digital, the FAA has improperly delayed producing the records on three separate information requests filed by APT. 
President Biden appeared to laugh off a question from a reporter Tuesday when asked about the potential audio recordings of his conversations with a Burisma executive who alleges he bribed Biden during his time as vice president. Are there tapes that you accepted bribes, President Biden? Is that true? New York Post reporter Stephen Nelson asked the president as he departed the White House East Room following an event. Biden seemingly found the question amusing and he made his way down the White House hallway. The president abruptly stopped before turning around to face the report. He was visibly grinning and laughing to himself, but remained notably silent. He then shook his head, turned back around and continued down the hallway. The question was prompted by the allegations exposed by Senator Chuck Grassley, who revealed Monday that a Burisma executive who allegedly paid Joe Biden and Hunter Biden had kept 17 audio recordings of his conversations with them as an insurance policy, citing the FBI FD 1023 form that the Bureau briefed congressional lawmakers on. Biden's exchange with the Post reporter didn't sit well with online critics who tore into the president for um, shirking off a question about an alleged bribery scandal with a laugh. If you look and listen really hard, you can detect an even ever so slightly difference in how the media treated the Democrat invented Russia collusion hoax every day for years and how they're treating revelation that FBI hid news of the existence of 17 tapes involving the Biden family, end quote. Federalist editor-in-chief Molly Hemingway wrote, He laughed in your face, America. That's a quote from the New York Post columnist Miranda Devine tweeting, Biden responds by condescending and or mocking using his form of humor. Journalist Jim Stinson responded, Absolute corruption. This question should be asked every time he's in public. Political comedian Tim Young weighed in. Biden has been under scrutiny for behavior that allegedly took place during his tenure as vice president under Barack Obama. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to look at some of the headlines. And joining us in the second hour, Kevin Palau, president of the Palau Association on Together PDX events taking place this summer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Kevin Palau with the Luis Palau Association on Together PDX, Together 2023, culminating in a worship on the waterfront on the 23rd of July. More on that in our second hour. Well, a Starbucks regional manager won a $25.6 million verdict on Friday after she accused the corporation of firing her for being white in response to a national backlash over the arrest of two black men at one of its Philadelphia cafes. The New Jersey federal jury decided in favor of Shannon Phillips, who sued Starbucks in 2019 over allegations of racial racial bias and discrimination, according to court filings. Well, it took the eight-member panel nearly five hours to award the $25 million in punitive damages and $600,000 in compensatory damages to Phillips determining that her skin color played a decisive role in her termination. Phillips, who worked for Starbucks for 13 years and oversaw roughly 100 cafes, was fired less than a month after Dante Robinson and Rashawn Nelson were arrested at a Spruce Street store in April of 2018 for refusing to leave a table. Well, the incident, captured on cell phone video, quickly went viral in Starbucks. Um, They faced intense scrutiny for the treatment of the men who were black who said that they were waiting for a business associate and hadn't ordered anything when a manager called the Philadelphia police. Well, Phillips was not present at the event. To quell the racial firestorm, however, the chain apologized and closed 8,000 U.S. stores early for a racial bias training and fired her. 
The House of Representatives on Wednesday voted against the idea of censuring and condemning Representative Adam Schiff for insisting that former President Donald Trump colluded with Russia to win the 2016 election. In a 2-5-1-9-6 vote, lawmakers decided to set aside the censure resolution against Schiff, effectively killing and preventing a vote of passage. The resolution introduced by Representative Anna Pauline Luna was opposed by 20 Republicans as two other GOP lawmakers voted present along with five Democrats. The resolution was known to be on shaky ground with some Republicans. One expected no vote was Representative Tom Massey, a Republican from Kentucky. He said he opposed the idea of a fine against Chip. The resolution up Wednesday recommended a $16 million fine but did not require it. Adam Schiff acted unethically, but if a resolution to fine him $16 million comes to the floor, I will vote to table it. Or vote against it, he tweeted on Wednesday. The Constitution says the House may make its own rules, but we can't violate other provisions of the Constitution. A $16 million fine is a violation of the 27th and 8th Amendments. Along with Massey, the 19 other Republicans voting with Democrats to kill the resolution said no. It wasn't clear late Wednesday whether House Republicans might try again with a resolution against Schiff that leaves out all mention of possible fines. The resolution that failed on the House floor Wednesday said uh, claims of the Trump-Russia collusion were cooked up by Trump's political opponents and pursued by the Department of Justice, despite the lack of any solid foundation for suspecting collusion. House Republicans delivered a blow to the Biden administration's federal regulation of, on pistols with stabilizing braces, voting in favor of the National Rifle Association supported resolution that aims to overturn the rule. The measure, House Joint Resolution 44, would nullify the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives rule that regulates stabilizing braces for firearms, for pistols, and prevent the ATF from reintroducing the same rule in the future. Well, pistol braces are accessories that can be attached to the rear of a gun to make it easier to fire with one hand. The accessories are often used by disabled veterans or other Americans. The ATF rule categorizes pistols with braces as short-barreled rifles, which require a federal license to own. The resolution passed nearly along party lines Tuesday evening, 219 to 210, with two Democrats voting in support and two Republicans voting against the measure. The NRA, which has been fighting the pistol brace rule since it was first floated in 2021, celebrated the the measure's passage to block this unlawful rule. The Justice Department has warned the PGA Tour that it plans to investigate its merger with the Saudi-backed Live Golf over antitrust concerns. Sources with knowledge of the matter told the Wall Street Journal. A Department of Justice probe could jeopardize and threaten to significantly delay the partnership, which PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan called transformational earlier this month. When the agreement was announced, the parties were set to combine their commercial business and rights into a new entity, Live Golf Investments. The firm spearheading the Live Tour is um, backed by the Saudi government's Sovereign Wealth Fund. Over the last year, the two entities have been entangled in multiple antitrust lawsuits. The merger deal ostensibly was supposed to put to rest the ongoing expensive litigation between the two groups. But that may not happen as quickly as was hoped by the parties involved. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow was was uh, pilloried by conservatives after declaring the network couldn't knowingly broadcast untrue things as its reasoning behind not taking uh, former President Donald Trump's post indictment speech live. A highly paid anchor and Russiagate enthusiast usually 
only appears Monday nights, but joined MSNBC's special coverage on Tuesday of the historic federal charges against Trump, where she explained why the left-wing network would not air Trump in real time as he addressed supporters in Bedminster, New Jersey. As we have said before, in these circumstances, there is a cost to us as a news organization to knowingly broadcast untrue things. I'll pause and you can assume there's a laugh track. We are here to bring you the news. It hurts our ability to do that if we live broadcast what we fully expect in advance to be a litany of lies and false accusations, no matter who says them. And I do not say this with any glee, end quote. Rachel Maddow will determine uh, which lies are fit for the public to hear. That will work out well. Writer Jason Whitlock tweeted in response, outspoken White House reporter uh, Simon Atebi, he declared Maddow's remarks a lie, while right-wing site The Post Millennial called her a disgraced propagandist. Maddow was also one of the faces of MSNBC's fixation for years on the Trump-Russia collusion theory and hyping the ultimately discredited Christopher Steele dossier. MSNBC has also been criticized in recent years for pushing the liberal narrative that the Hunter Biden laptop was part of a Russian misinformation campaign, which has also been debunked, proving that she has absolutely no sense of irony. MSNBC's Maddow declared there's a cost for her network to knowingly broadcasting untrue things. Conservative media analyst Kevin Tober wrote for Newsbusters. Well, media progressives were pleased with the stand taken by the network. Maddow was impl- implicitly praised by CNN's outspoken media reporter Oliver Darcy, who retweeted her explanation without commentary. He also noted CNN did not take Trump live and couldn't resist taking a shot at the former boss, Chris Licht, in his newsletter on Tuesday night. The move to not air Trump's remarks live notably represented a departure from how the network handled Trump's post-New York arraignment speech. In that case, under former boss Chris Licht, CNN aired most of Trump's remarks. Now, interestingly, Licht was um, trying to balance out the content on CNN, but of course that has not worked out. Negotiations between UPS and the Teamsters over a new contract for the roughly 350,000 unionized workers at UPS are moving ahead as the threat of a potential strike later this summer hangs over the economy. UPS's role in the U.S. economy has grown in recent years due to the rise in e-commerce and an influx of deliveries during the pandemic, a trend that has remained even as the economy reopened and supply chain challenges abated. Well, the company ships about 24 million packages every day and handles roughly one-fourth of all U.S. parcel volume, according to shipping and logistics firms Pitney Bowles, which UPS uh, notes is roughly equivalent to 6% of America's gross domestic product. The sheer volume of UPS deliveries couldn't be absorbed by FedEx or the U.S. Postal Service in the event of a strike, which would create delays and increased prices due to the lost capacity in the logistics system. We'll keep an eye on what's happening there. Lightning Motorcycles is speeding up a design of its bikes with the help of artificial intelligence. The San Jose, California-based electric motorcycle builder has started using new AutoCAD computer-aided design software system from Autodesk that leverages generative AI to develop complex components in a fraction of the time it would take engineers to do it using standard methods. It really allows our engineers to draw on a much greater database of ideas, the Lightning Motors Corp. CEO said. Uh, where we um, could typically be limited by the engineer's experience, we can now draw on the generative design software's database of opinions and options. A pilot project focused on the suspension uh, swing arm uh, for an upcoming higher performance version of the uh, motorbike, the superbike, is in process.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break and be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Kevin Palau. Are you aware of Together 2023, a number of events going on this summer with the Body of Christ, culminating in a worship event on the 23rd of July? on Portland's waterfront. We'll talk about it. But if you want to check it out right now, go to togetherpdx.org for all the important details. Well, seeing California Governor Newsom say he took responsibility for the homelessness problem in California and calling it disgraceful while being interviewed by Sean Hannity this week was unexpected. Newsom cited housing costs as being too high and the regulatory thickets being too problematic. And he acknowledged the disparity of over 170,000 homeless in California compared with 26,000 in Florida, states with uh, comparable good weather, as Hannity pointed out. I own it, the governor said boldly, but one central issue he didn't own but should have acknowledged is the associated mental health crisis, which certainly is not exclusive to the state of California. Dr. Marie Raven, chief of emergency medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, pointed out that uh, on Dr. Radio reports on Sirius XM this week, that there is frequently nowhere for the mentally ill to go from the emergency room after a brief hold, except back out onto the streets. Former President Donald Trump is putting his fast multiplying legal troubles to good use, raising seven million dollars and counting since he was uh, indicted in Jack Smith's classified documents probe. Trump has decried the prosecution as a persecution and that uh, message appears to be making waves with some of his supporters. The former president held the first major fundraising of his campaign on Tuesday, the same day as his Miami arraignment. Federal Reserve officials agreed to hold interest rates steady for uh, steady after 10 consecutive increases, but signal they're leaning toward raising them next month if the economy and inflation don't cool more. They predict at least two more times this year. Over half of American voters believe that the Biden family has accepted payments from foreign nationals in order to influence politics in Washington, D.C., according to a new poll from the Convention of States Action and the Trafalgar Group. President Biden's son, Hunter, is currently the subject of a House Oversight Committee investigation looking into his conduct in business transactions while overseas. But in this country, one is innocent until proven guilty. Still, a new poll reveals that the majority, 53.3 percent of Americans, believe the family received payments from foreign nationals to influence policy in Washington. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem has a significant lead in the 2026 Republican Senate primary if she decides to enter the race, according to a new poll of Republican voters in the state. Nome is the most well-liked politician among South Dakotan Republican voters uh, with a 78 percent favorable rating per Kaplan Strategies poll, Dakota News. Um, no candidate has entered the 2026 U.S. Senate election for the South Dakota seat currently held by Senator Mark Rounds. A potential primary between Rounds and Nome showed Nome in the lead with 53 percent of the support, while Rounds had 26 percent. Marriages in China dropped in 2022 to their lowest since records began continu- uh, continuing a steady decline over the past decade, although the matrimonial total may have been affected by strident COVID lockdowns, as in so many other places. Former Marine Daniel Penny has been indicted on charges of second-degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide and chokehold killing of Jordan Neely last month. A grand jury sitting in Manhattan reached its decision on Wednesday. 
European Union lawmakers on Wednesday took a key step toward passing a landmark artificial intelligence bill, putting Brussels on a collision course with American tech giants, funneling billions of dollars into the burgeoning technology. The European Parliament overwhelmingly approved the EU AI Act, a sweeping package that aims to protect consumers from potentially dangerous applications of artificial intelligence, reacting to concerns that recent advances in technology could be used for nefarious ends, ushering in surveillance, algorithmically driven discrimination and prolific misinformation that could upend democracy. It would ban tools that European lawmakers deem unacceptable, such as Systems allowing law enforcement to predict criminal behavior using analytics. It would introduce new limits on technologies simply deemed high risk, like tools that could sway voters to influence elections or recommend uh, recommendation algorithms, which suggest what posts, photos and videos people see on social media. The next stage is for negotiators in EU institutions, such as the EU executive body and 27 member states. It comes as countries around the world are looking to bring in rules and standards for AI. Citigroup will have cut 5,000 jobs by the end of the month, mostly in investment banking and trading after a prolonged slump in deal making. The bank, which is still struggling to regain its footing more than a decade after the financial crisis, has already dismissed thousands of employees since the start of the year. The cuts, which represent 2% of the bank's overall staff, were announced by Chief Financial Officer Mark Mason at an investor conference on Wednesday. He warned that severance costs related to the 1600 of the dismissals would crimp second quarter earnings. The GOP is leading the way on gas stoves. On Wednesday, House Republicans successfully passed the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act, with more than two dozen Democrats joining the GOP majority to counter Joe Biden's effort to ban gas stoves in the future. The legislation passed 248 to 180 and is now headed to the Democrat-controlled Senate, where West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin introduced a similar bill. The federal government has no business telling Americans how to cook their dinner, Manchin said. My view is that that is part of a broader administration-wide regulatory effort to eliminate fossil fuels. His assertion is accurate, and in this case, Biden's Consumer Product Safety Commission has effectively introduced a ban on gas stoves by putting forth new efficiency standards that nearly all stoves currently on the market fail to meet. Republican Miami Mayor Francis Suarez announced his entry into the presidential primary yesterday. The two-term mayor is Cuban-American, widely popular in Miami, as he has um, led the city into an economic boom. In his announcement video, Suarez, he touted his Miami record overseeing economic growth while maintaining low crime as a blueprint for the nation. He's one of the few Republicans in the field who did not support Donald Trump in 2020. He's also been critical of Governor Ron DeSantis, particularly regarding his actions against Disney. Suarez is fiscally conservative, business-friendly, and pro-law and order, but culturally liberal. He proudly embraces the LGBTQ crowd and recently posted a social media message in support of Transgender Day of Remembrance and Resiliency. During the COVID pandemic, he was a big proponent of masking and crossed horns with DeSantis over his banning of masking and vaccine mandates. His entry into an increasingly crowded and racially diverse field of GOP candidates serves to further expose the false nature of the smear that the Republican Party is the party of white supremacy. Senator Ernst is seeking to disarm the IRS agents. The Iowa Republican doesn't understand why the IRS needs and wants guns. So she has announced a bill to disarm the tax agency, dubbed the Why Does the IRS Have Guns Act. 
Ernst observed the tax man is fully loaded at the expense of the taxpayer. She noted that according to research from Open the Books since 2006, the IRS has spent $35.2 million on firearms, ammunition and military style equipment. Her argument is that tax agents are not law enforcement agents and therefore do not need to be armed and act as such. If passed into law, the Ernst bill would remove the IRS's criminal division from the tax agency and make it a division of the Justice Department. Mail theft crime is spiking since the pandemic. The U.S. Postal Service has repeatedly has reported rather a significant uptick in mail theft, specifically crime targeting bill paychecks. Uh, This coincides with reporting from the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network that the number of check fraud scams nearly doubled over the same time span. In 2021, there were 350,000 check fraud scams that jumped to 680,000 last year. Even as the number of people using checks continues to decline, FinCEN estimated $24 billion in check fraud last year. Mark D. Solomon, vice president of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators, observed that mailed checks have become a target for criminals. Checks are more vulnerable than other payment methods to being compromised, counterfeited or stolen. The trouble is the older generation tends to believe in the security of sending checks, when in reality they have become one of the riskiest ways of paying bills. A GOP senator blocked an arms sale to Hungary. Hungary standing in the way of Sweden's entry into NATO and Idaho Senator James Risch, the top Republican in the Foreign Relations Committee, has had enough. Budapest has drug its feet on giving approval to Sweden's NATO membership as Hungary has the power to veto entry for any new member into the military alliance. Frustrated, the member of, uh, of the Senate has blocked a new arms sale to Hungary, arguing for some time now I have directly express my concerns to the Hungarian government regarding its refusal to move forward to vote for Sweden to join NATO. He then explained the fact that it is now June and still no, uh, not done. I decided that the sale of new U.S. military equipment to Hungary will not uh, move forward. Uh, tensions between Hungary and Sweden appear to be at the root of the current impasse. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Kevin Palau, president, CEO of the Luis Palau Association, on Together PDX. Sponsoring Together 2023, Worship on the Waterfront, the Summer of Service, and an opportunity to pray for the city. That's all coming up in my conversation with Kevin Palau in our next couple of segments. So stay with us and we'll finish things up with uh, some words about words. We're continuing to look at some of the day's headlines and we'll do that until we talk to Kevin Palau. Daniel Penny is facing up to 15 years for second degree manslaughter in the death of Jordan Neely. The network spent 291 minutes on the Trump indictment zero seconds on the Biden-Burisma bribery scheme. And President Joe Biden vetoed Republicans' efforts to roll back an environmental protection agency standard related to vehicle pollution. The president announced his veto on Twitter on Wednesday. The House passed its resolution on the 23rd of May that would cancel the EPA's heavy-duty vehicle emissions rule that the agency finalized in December. The Senate passed the resolution in April. Supporters of the resolution, mainly Republicans, believe the emissions rule will drive up the prices of trucks and products that they transport. However, the EPA estimated the rule would reduce the risk of respiratory and other illnesses from vehicle emissions. The rule took effect in March, but doesn't apply to new vehicles until 
model year 2027. The EPA estimates it would result in 860 to 2,900 fewer premature deaths in 2045. Thousands of schools are urge or instruct teachers to hide students' gender identity from their parents. And Vanderbilt Pediatrics Transgender Clinic was terminated, uh, gender-affirming care treatment, as they refer to it, um, before Tennessee's law took effect. After three hours of public comment and months of intense debate, the Hamtrak City Council voted unanimously Tuesday night to ban LGBTQ plus pride flags from being displayed on all city properties. Introduced by the mayor pro tem, uh, Mohammed Hassan, the resolution also prohibited the display and flying of flags with racist or political views. Before the vote, Hassan gave a fiery speech blasting critics of the resolution for not respecting the views of the city's residents, quoting from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address about how government should be of the people, by the people, for the people. The clashes represented diverging views about the future of the community, whose population jumped 27 percent from 2010 to 2020, one of the biggest spikes among older cities in Michigan. Meanwhile, middle schoolers in Marshall Simons Middle School in Burlington, Massachusetts, did something that sent shockwaves through the local Massachusetts community, stunned the local school board and sent the liberal media into meltdown mode. Marshall Simons Middle Schoolers just outside of Boston saw an LGBT event wrecked by a pronoun rebellion. Pride flags were destroyed. Chants of USA rang throughout the school. To be more precise, they were chanting, my pronouns are USA, while decking out, decked out rather in patriotic colors rather than rainbow. The event caused some local school board members to lose sleep over the incident. Now the uh, flock is pushing to punish these kids from exercising their constitutional right to free speech and expression. One uh, co-chair of the Burlington Equity Coalition said that students were invited to wear rainbow clothing on the 2nd of June in celebration of Pride Month. The coalition is calling for consequences for the students who participated in the counter protest wearing red, white and blue and is urging the district to fill the UMC's um, embrace to LGBTQ ideology, despite the fact that the general conference voted to uphold um The event. Well, inflation skyrocketed and the president uh, is boasting the price of eggs has precipitously dropped from the record highs of January and is down 13.8 percent from April. Of course, falling egg prices coincide with the slowing rate of inflation now at roughly four percent over last year. White House posted a graphic depicting the inflation rate with a message. Great news. Today's inflation report shows annual inflation is now at the lowest level since March of 21 and less than half of what it was last June. The White House added this is giving families real breathing room. The post was, well, rather laughable as it demonstrated that all this inflation that Americans have endured began uh, with the administration, of course, it was the pandemic, and it is yet to drop back down to the level of the U.S. economy under the previous administration. As Governor Ron DeSantis, press secretary Jerry Redfern observed, you've dragged about uh, you've bragged rather about prices continuing to increase. Conservative commentator uh, commentator Justin Haskins also weighed in. This is uh, dishonest, he points out. The White House knows most don't understand inflation. Inflation going down does not mean. There's more breathing room. It means the rate of uh, price increases is slowing, but still going up. We're paying more than ever. We need deflation in the prices so that they'll go down. Meanwhile, the Fed blew $3 trillion on improper payments over the last 20 years. 
And dozens of war games show the U.S. is unprepared for a horrifically bloody war with China, should one come. President Biden is preparing plans to evacuate Americans from Taiwan. And a new study published by Duke University shows that a larger number of individuals who identify as LGBT actually end up switching back to heterosexual in just a few years time. Again, this is a Duke University study. First, um, the gays, which is a lower number, a total of 8.6% of people, according to the study, who identified as gay and lesbian in the first wave, changed their identity to heterosexual by the second wave. In other words, roughly six years later. Born this way or social contagion, fueled by media, pop culture, and social media is a big question. So nearly one in ten uh, gays and lesbians got a little older and realized that they weren't actually gay, according to the study. The switch was uh, even more drastic within the LGBT categories. Among those who identified as bisexual, 44% changed their identity to heterosexual. In six years' time, 44% discovered that they were also straight. And among those who identified as uh, other, a category that includes transgender individuals, a total of 69.6% changed to heterosexual. Again, this is a study uh, just recently released. I haven't read it in its in, in total. Uh, even among those who didn't want to disclose their sexual identity in the first wave, 62.2%, according to the study, identified as heterosexual by the second wave. The study was done on people of all ages, income levels, and socioeconomic backgrounds. And in the follow-ups, a trans person was more likely to have dropped the rainbow identity and returned to straight than uh, to not have done so. So it's, uh, again, rather interesting. The U.K. just banned chemical castration for kids. America should do the same. The White House banned the trans activists who went topless after meeting the president. And the Wuhan lab scientists researching the coronavirus were the first to contract COVID-19. U.S. intelligence confirmed it buys uh, Americans' personal data. And millions of borrowers are in danger of default when student loan repayments resume. 300 million jobs will be lost or degraded by artificial intelligence, a report says. But they say no uh, reason to panic. California can't generate enough power to fuel its electric vehicle mandate. And red states are fighting back against local um, climate policies. Southern Baptists have refused to let Saddleback Church back into the denomination. And Belarus started taking delivery of Russian nuclear weapons. That does not portend uh, well. On this day in history, 1934, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs an act making the National Guard part of the U.S. Army in an event of war or national emergency. 1938, Johnny Vandermeer pitches his second consecutive no-hitter, leading the, the Cincinnati Reds to a 6-0 victory over the Brooklyn Dodgers in the first night game at Ebbets Field, four days after leaving the Boston Bees hitless by a score of 3-0, the Boston Bees. 1955, the United States and Britain sign a cooperation agreement concerning atomic information for mutual defense purposes. 1969, the variety show Hee Haw debuts on CBS TV. 1992, Vice President Dan Quayle, relying on a faulty flashcard, erroneously instructs sixth grade student William Figueroa of Trenton, New Jersey, to spell potato with an E during a spelling bee. Not to be confused with the Boston Bees, by the way. 1994, Israel and the Vatican established formal diplomatic relations. And 95, O.J. Simpson tries on the glove. Said it's been uh, worn by the killer of his wife, Nicole Simpson, and her friend at the trial, and they appear not to fit.
2014, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu accuses the Hamas militant group of kidnapping three Israeli teenagers. 2018, Theranos founder and former CEO Elizabeth Holmes are charged by the Justice Department for wire fraud schemes. 2018, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort is jailed to await two criminal trials. A federal judge revokes his house arrest over allegations of witness tampering in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Manafort would be sentenced to more than seven years in prison on federal charges. 2018, Renee Boucher, a neighbor of U.S. Senator Rand Paul, is sentenced to 30 days in prison for attacking Paul while he was out doing yard work at his Kentucky home. Also in 2018, President Trump announces a 25-cent tariff up um, to $50 billion in Chinese imports. Well, TikTok influencers and celebrities are increasingly taking over from journalists as the main source of news for young people, according to a report published Wednesday by the Britain-based Reuters Institute. The report found that 55% of TikTok and Snapchat users and 52% of Instagram users get their news from personalities, compared to 33 to 42% who get their uh, mainstream media and uh, get their news from mainstream media and journalists on those platforms, which are most popular among the young. Well, coming up, we're going to switch gears entirely. We'll talk with Kevin Palau about what's going on this summer here in the Portland metro area together. 2023. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you haven't noticed, there's something going on here in the Portland metro area that you need to know about. We're talking about Together 2023 that will culminate in a worship event at the Portland waterfront on Sunday, July the 23rd. But it's not just limited to that. You are invited as churches from all around the Portland area are coming together in service and in prayer. And as I mentioned, it will culminate in a family-friendly worship gathering featuring local worship leaders joined by special guests, including Matt Redmond. Well, here to talk with us about that is Kevin Palau, who is president and CEO of the Luis Palau Association. Under his leadership, uh, the, the association has united tens of thousands of churches in hundreds of cities to love and serve their communities and to clearly share the good news of Jesus. Kevin has also helped develop a global network of hundreds of partner evangelists and launched a city gospel movement's effort to unite churches to serve their city and to proclaim the good news on an ongoing basis. Kevin has also helped lead Together PDX, and he joins us now to talk about this summer. Kevin Palau, it is a pleasure to have you with us. It's so good to hear your voice again, Georgine, and uh, we've worked together for many years on stuff in Portland. Well, we have, and I'm so grateful for your leadership and the role that the Palau Association has played in bringing the church together to express the love of Jesus here at home and certainly around the world as well. So kudos on your efforts in that regard. Exciting. It's exciting. And, and, you know, we travel all around the world as the Palau's, but we love Portland. And, you know, this hasn't been the most, the easiest season for the church or for a city like Portland, but what an opportunity to come together once again. We, you know, we are one in Christ. It's just things like this give us the, ex- the excuse, so to speak, to demonstrate that unity internally that, so that we remind ourselves mm-hmm. as people from hundreds of different churches that we are one in Christ, but also to remind the city we're here, we love the city, we care about meeting the needs of our neighbors, and we want to come together and worship and share the good news. I am so grateful 
uh, that you and your your brothers and the Palau Association are continuing the legacy of your father, Luis Palau. I still struggle with (laughs) recognizing that he's no longer with us. He's in the presence of the king. But I'm so grateful for that legacy. Yes. I mean, we think about dad all the time. He was the real deal. You know, he practiced what he preached. He really did. He loved people, people that were different from him. Uh, People in Portland loved him. He had great relationships with whoever the mayor was. He just had that winsome fragrance of Christ, and he wanted people to know Jesus. And and that's what we're hoping will happen this summer as churches work together once again, and and they're down in the waterfront um, Sunday, July 23rd. Well, tell us generally about Together PDX. And again, you've kind of explained the heart of calling the body of Christ together, but tell us a little bit about this this, uh, effort. Well, so Together PDX, it's funny, it's really just a name that we finally landed on for what's happened with many churches in Portland since the last festival we did. Way back in 2008, those of you that are old enough and have been around (laughs) long enough will remember that way back in 2008, we gathered tens of thousands of people in Waterfront Park with Dad, and we had Toby Mac and Lecrae and all these different amazing bands. We served the city for months. And then we had this big evangelistic festival. And since then, well over 150 churches of all different denominations have continued to work together, pastors meeting together in prayer groups around the city, serving the community together uh, in areas like foster care and serving our public schools and serving our refugee community. And, and for years, we, we purposely didn't want to over-organize that. We wanted it to just mostly be a relational network of churches but about five years ago, we said, you know what, let's just finally call it something so that there's less confusion. Let's have a website just to kind of celebrate the good things God's doing within the, and among the churches and also point toward ways we can serve together. So if anyone wants to ever go to togetherpdx.org, PDX is our airport code, as I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. but togetherpdx.org, there's, there's, uh, there's always things going on in the area of prayer, Pastors can find out about uh, uh, one of dozens of different pastors' prayer groups they can join. There's always things going on in the community service side. There are evangelistic things happening. But this summer, some of the pastors said, you know what, we've been finally coming out of the challenges of COVID. Many of our churches were rocked by various, even sometimes internal struggles and disagreements. Let's get together on the waterfront again. Let's worship together. Let's pray together. Let's share the good news. So that's what we call Together 2023. We're going to be gathering with Matt Redman, with an amazing locally uh, local group of group leaders from a number of different churches. Um, uh, Mike Dean, who's an amazing worship leader and, and a pastor at Imago Dei Eastside, is pulling together that local worship team. But we're just going to get together. We're going to have some food trucks down there. We're going to spend a couple of hours from 4 to 6 p.m. worshiping, praying, my brother Andrew is going to share the gospel. We're going to have a testimony of someone that's come to Christ in the last year in Portland. So it's going to be a really fun time to be the body of Christ together on Sunday, July 23rd. It's so encouraging to come together with members of the body outside of our own local congregation and to be reminded that we are connected to one another. We have a common call and purpose in the city God has placed us in. So I would encourage people to go to the website because, again, I think you'll find some encouragement to see what's going on in the city with regard to the gospel and the church 
uh, here in our community. TogetherPDX.org is a great uh, resource for that. Now, in addition to the worship festival, and I want to make sure we emphasize those details in a moment, there are other things going on. From June through August, the Summer of Service uh, is also going on in which the church has opportunity to minister in our uh, community. And and this time around, uh, serving the houseless neighbors that live in the Portland metro area. We made national headlines again today on that subject. Uh, talk a bit about how we can serve and how the, the body of Christ has come together for that purpose. Yeah, thank you, Georgine. We all know any of us that live in the Portland metro area, we see every single day how this crisis of, of, of among the homeless community is, is it's just everywhere we look. And it's struggled, you know, to, it's, it's a struggle at times to know, like, what can we do? So a great group of outreach pastors from some of the larger churches got together and said, Let's go interview 40 different nonprofits, some of the obvious faith-based ones like Portland Rescue Mission, Salvation Army, City Team, Union Gospel Mission. Let's find out what their needs are, and let's also go to some of the um, uh, uh, nonprofits that serve the homeless community that aren't necessarily faith-based, but they also wake up every day trying to serve that community. So we, we got to know 40 of them. We had a really nice dinner last November one, just to say thank you. You are on the front line serving this community in ways that we probably couldn't as individuals. So we asked the question, how can we serve you and make your life easier? So rather than trying to organize the churches to go directly into these homeless encampments, which we may not be you know, properly mm-hmm. geared up to do, let's come alongside and serve the agencies that are working with the homeless. So we have 40 different agencies that are ready for help. We already have about 25, maybe 30 of those agencies that have been adopted, so to speak, by churches. All that means is some of those agencies are saying, we, we would love to have a church come or even a small group from a church come and um, do a, help us do a little makeover of our facilities or do a staff appreciation event, do some beautification of the grounds outside of our organization. So in a way, it's coming alongside the people that are serving the homeless. And that might seem a little indirect. But we want to think sustainably and longer term Mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, giving a one time meal. We want to come alongside and hold up the arms, so to speak, of those agencies that are serving the homeless. So people could go to that TogetherPDX.org website and find out how your church can get involved and serve one or two particular agencies uh, that are serving the homeless. One other way that they're doing that is we're going to end up producing thousands of kits. That, are, that have the materials that these agencies need to serve our houseless friends and neighbors. So you can find out um, an, an, the, the name and details on a nonprofit that's looking for help. You can find out how you can get involved in a beautification project or um, a staff appreciation event, or simply provide um, $10 even as an example to provide a little bit of the materials for one of these kits that are going to help these agencies serve the homeless. So I thought that was a really creative approach. Let's serve those that are waking up every day serving the homeless, that are struggling maybe with their own discouragement, and let's let the church 
hold their arms up. Oh, that's incredible because because they will continue to do the work uh, long after our season has, exactly. has come to a close. Now, we're, we're exactly talking right. about um, Together PDX and the activities that are taking place this summer. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to take a look at uh, the opportunity to pray for the city as well as the worship festival coming up on the 23rd of July. And we want to encourage you to be a part of what's going to be a great a great event. Anyway, that's all coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I have the distinct privilege of talking with Kevin Palau, President, CEO of the Luis Palau Association, and also working with Together PDX about what's happening this summer in the Portland metro area where the body of Christ has come together to serve, to pray, and then to worship. And we want to make sure that you know that you are invited. If your church isn't uh, involved, uh, talk to the leadership of your church. But we want to come together as the body of Christ and just minister the love of Christ uh, in the community he has placed us in. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the summer of service. There's also opportunity to pray for the city. Uh, that's happening now. I know it's an ongoing effort, but talk a little bit about this summer in which we are praying for the city as the body of Christ coming together. Well, you know, um, when we talk about Together PDX, again, the beautiful thing is it's, it's an ongoing relational network of well over 150 churches. And one aspect of that is a prayer team. So there's a, 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 a wonderful group of leaders from a lot of different churches that are particular prayer warriors. And a wonderful woman named Rene Boucher leads that up. And they've, they've um, kind of put together four areas that they feel should be prayed for this summer in particular, praying for Gen Z praying for unity in the church, praying for salvation and healing, especially for our houseless friends and neighbors, prayer for the hurting and marginalized. And every single Sunday night um, for the next you know, month, at least as we build up to uh, July 23rd in Waterfront Park, there's going to be a special prayer time um, at a small church called Garden Church in Old Town. But the details are all on the website. Yes. But if you're, if you're a particular, if you're a prayer warrior kind of person, you know who you are. You're those people that you can't understand why everybody doesn't want to pray all the time or isn't willing to do 24-7 prayer. If you're one of those kind of people, or even if, frankly, you're not so hardcore, but you just want to be with some brothers and sisters and pray for the city, go to the website and get the details about Sunday nights. Because every Sunday night, building up to July 23rd, we just want to have people from different churches praying together for each other, for the city, for homelessness. Um, praying for people to to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. We need God's help. Our city is in trouble, and uh, prayer is one amazing way to tackle it. Absolutely. There's also an app, Holy Ground, to prayer walk your neighborhood or your region. So it's just got a lot of great information uh, for what's happening here in the Portland metro area this summer and beyond. So I would encourage you, again, to go to the website, togetherpdx.org, and uh, find out uh, more about that. Now, everything culminates on the 23rd of July, uh, where there's an opportunity for worship on the waterfront. This is a family-friendly event, and I, I emphasize that because it is designed for not just the adults to come together for worship, but taking into account that, you know, we've got families, and there are small ones mm-hmm. and teenage ones and, you know, and everything. Tell us about this worship on the waterfront and what we can expect. Well, you know, it's been it's been quite a few years since we've attempted to mobilize 100 plus churches. And I think we're at 105 different congregations now, all the way from 
you know, Troutdale, Gresham area to Forest Grove and Hillsboro and Beaverton and everything in between Clark County um, coming together to say, let's have a fun time on a Sunday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. We have five amazing food trucks, kind of iconic Portland food trucks down there to, to provide food for everybody. Um, we're going to have Matt Redman, who, you know, many of us sing his songs on Sunday mornings mm-hmm. at our churches. Matt came to the Lord, by the way, as a 10-year-old. Matt Redman, who was having some real struggles in his family, his mom brought him to a football stadium in London, England, where a guy named Luis Palau preached the gospel and talked about a father in heaven who loves him. And Matt Redman came to know Jesus Christ then. And so ever since he's been an amazing friend, and he jumped at the chance to say, yes, I would love to come to Portland and help lead worship with some local Portland worship leaders and just just give this opportunity to remind ourselves of the beauty of Jesus Christ, the glory of the good news. We're going to have local leaders from different churches praying for the city. We're going to mostly worship, but we're also going to have um, some testimony shared. My brother, Andrew Palau, who's kind of a chip off the old block and is a gift of evangelism, he's going to share the good news. So if you have friends that need to hear the gospel or people that have drifted away, come and enjoy, hopefully, a beautiful summer, sunny day. Get some food, bring a Frisbee, enjoy the waterfront, but enjoy being together around the gospel of Jesus Christ, too. Well, it's a, a great opportunity to come together, and there's no better place than the waterfront for the, the, the church to come together from our various denominations and locations and cities and uh, different backgrounds and all of that. We come together with a common purpose, and that is lifting up the name of Jesus along the the waterfront of the city of Portland. And that says something not just to, to mm-hmm. us as we come together as believers, but it says something to our city. Uh, when we gather for this purpose, not to p- suggest what's wrong with the city, but to, to simply acknowledge that yes. the Lord of the city cares about what happens here and we care about what happens here and we're responding to his call. Now, for folks who uh, want more information on that, again, you can go to togetherpdx.org and learn more information about the details. Now, my understanding is it all starts at 4 p.m.? That's correct. It's just a couple hours, 4 to 6 p.m., but the food trucks will be there. We're hoping that people will hang out and get some food, meet some people, you know, certainly come with a group from your church, but meet some people from other churches. And um, it's going to be a beautifully diverse representation of the body of Christ. There are churches of every denomination and ethnicity, young and old. It's going to be a beautiful thing to be together. And we're going to celebrate this summer of service there as well. We're going to have, we're going to kind of remind ourselves of some of the good things that would have already happened at that point. But this is kind of smack dab in the middle of the summer on purpose. We're hoping to use that at the Together 23 rally, the worship time, to also remind people, hey, the, the crisis continues. Portland needs help. Find a simple way to maybe just with a small group from your church to engage with one of the many agencies that are serving the homeless. So it's going to be a combination of prayer, worship, sharing the gospel, and celebrating the the community service uh, efforts of our churches. Again, and you can get all the details, togetherpdx.org. I would encourage you to do that, uh, to join us for the worship evening on the 23rd of July, to involve yourself in the summer of service or to pray for the city, whether that's meeting on a Sunday evening or it's uh, prayer walking in your neighborhood. You can find all the important details and how to connect 
uh, with what's going on here in our community at that uh, website. You know, I'm, I'm so encouraged to see that the Palau Association is continuing to reach out uh, beyond the city of Portland, but that we have not been forgotten. This is this is mm-hmm. home. Luis Palau belonged to us. And uh, by yeah. extension, you and, and your family, your brother belong to us. Yeah. I can't let you go before I ask you how your mom is doing. Thank you, Georgine. She is doing so well. She's 85 now. Oh, she her misses dad a ton. They were, they were married for, you know, 55 years. And it's really more than 55 years. She is doing really, really well. See her at church every single Sunday. She just sold her house and she's moving to a, a, a wonderful retirement community right around the corner from my brother, Andrew, and his wife, Wendy. So she is sharing the good news. She's part of Bible studies. She's enjoying her grandkids. And now her first great-grandchild, <laughs> I'm a grandpa now, Ezekiel Luis Palau is five months old. Oh, and, congratulations. Uh, so we got another generation of Palau's running around the Portland area. Oh, excellent. Well, I, again, am so grateful that you have continued the work of sharing the gospel. It's not just your father's legacy, although we love him so dearly. We recognize that connection. Mm -hmm. But you are following the commission that that Christ has given to all of us to preach the good news, to share the gospel, to faithfully serve him in the city that we have been uh, placed. And you have continued to do that faithfully and beyond around the world. Where's your next big festival outside of the uh, the U.S.? Or for that matter, in the the U.S.? Yeah, well, exactly. But the next big one we have is Nairobi, Kenya. It's a very, very large city. So in September, we're in Nairobi. In October, Andrew and Wendy are in uh, Cairo, Egypt. November, Montevideo, which is the capital of Uruguay. And then in December, we just got the word that we're able to go back to mainland China for the first time in years. And we've, it's been amazing the favor we've had and the ability to go do Christmas outreaches. As long as they're on church grounds, church property, we've had full freedom to share the gospel there. So it's going to be a busy September, October, November, December. And actually for the summer, we're putting all our focus on Portland. Well, we are, are grateful for that. I would encourage our listeners, if you're not familiar uh, with Proclaim that kind of helps you keep in touch with what's going on with the Palau Association. That's a great uh publication to uh, subscribe to. Is there a, a hard copy or is it just online subscription? How do you connect with that? You can, yeah, if people want to go to, to palau.org, P-A-L-A-U.org, you can always find out what we're doing. But uh, yeah, there is, a, there is a printed one that's mailed out for people that like that. You can also get an online version. But yeah, it just tells super encouraging stories yes. of God at work around the world, the power of the gospel, the way that in this case, the Palau Association, we're just one of countless amazing organizations trying to share the gospel. But we are really encouraged, even with that gone, my brother Andrew and his wife, Wendy, thank God, have this amazing heart and gift in evangelism. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing thousands of other evangelists, we're seeing the church unite around the gospel. Lots of things happening in the digital space where the gospel can be shared. I mean, we all know the problems of the internet and, and the, you know, the, the discouraging things of social media. But it is also an opportunity to share the gospel. So we're doing that as well. Yeah, God always has a redemptive purpose for things that are misused. So grateful it's for true. that. Very true. Well, I'm looking forward to worshiping together on July the 23rd. want to encourage our listeners to check out the website togetherpdx.org for more information about that and the summer and service and a prayer for the city. And again, thank you so much, Kevin, for your faithfulness and for taking the time to talk with us here today. 
we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and God's going to use us to make a difference this summer and beyond. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I recently read a column written by Christine Flowers, some words about words that I wanted to share with you. She writes that as I was scrolling through my Facebook memories, a video popped up from seven years ago. I was in Harrisburg speaking on the steps of the state capitol at a pro-family, pro-life rally. The things that struck me, other than the fact that it was such a large crowd of people, were the words I was using about words. More specifically, I was talking about the importance of using the correct language when talking about pro-life issues. The abortion rights movement has been able to deflect attention from the actual nature of abortion by repackaging it first as choice. And then uh, when that wasn't working well, shifting a woman's reproductive health, they called people like me who opposed abortion anti-choice and refused to use the term that we prefer pro-life. They discouraged the use of the word abortionist and opted to use the more ambiguous doctor or health care provider. For decades, it worked. Two generations of people grew up believing that abortion was a right instead of a human rights violation. That's why people were so shocked when Roe versus Wade was overturned last year, because they couldn't believe that this benign right that they had taken for granted for almost five decades was exposed as a sham creation of a few elderly male justices. Words matter. Language matters. Lately, I've begun to describe myself as anti-abortion, as opposed to pro-life, for consistency and transparency. I supported the death penalty in capital cases, mostly the ones involving murder or crimes against a child. Therefore, to be morally and internally consistent with my language, I cannot call myself pro-life. But there is no question that anyone who thinks abortion should be legal is pro-abortion. That's just common sense. I suppose my interest in language stems from the fact that I was essentially raised by nuns in the Catholic schools of my era. You were taught reverence for words and their place in our lexicon. We would diagram sentences, and I still know the difference between a, uh, a gerund, a past participle, an adjective, adverb, and subordinate clause. I also uh, I was also a teacher of foreign languages, and I understand the importance of context and connotation. And those four years of high school Latin drilled into me the beauty that comes from unraveling knots of words to reveal a smooth and seamless line of poetry. Gaul might have been divided into three parts, but I was more concerned with the beauty of the words, not geographical accuracy. Beyond the abortion context, I've started to see crimes committed against language with a view to creating false narratives. These false narratives are then used to change society into something that is, well, base, dishonest and dangerous. Take, for example, the trans controversy. It's quite common to receive emails these days where the person provides his or her or their preferred pronouns. We're told that trans women are actually women and that men can get pregnant. People tell us these things that with a straight face, and if we laugh or protest, then we're bigots. It's so bizarre, we now have a Supreme Court justice, Katanjeet Brown Jackson, who is either unwilling or unable to define the term woman. I know a bunch of third graders who are apparently more aware than Justice Jackson of the difference between men and women. When I asked one of them the other day, she said this, women can be mommies. They don't have to be mommies, but they can be mommies if they want. Men can't, even though they can look like them. I want to nominate that child for the Nobel Prize in Common Sense. 
The words that we use determine the rules by which we live. If we accept that a person who was born with a biological apparatus of a man is actually a woman, and if we base this on the fact that the man really believes he is a woman, then we are obligated to call that person a woman. Frankly, I do not want to live in that sort of world and do not intend to. People can lie to themselves because they mistakenly believe this is a form of tolerance, or they can lie to themselves because they know the science and it doesn't agree with their perceived notions of right and wrong, real and fictitious. We can call a man a woman to be polite, and we can call a baby a fetus in order to strip it of its humanity. But in the end, the words have their own life, their own value and existence, separate and apart from any dishonest purpose, and I refuse to play that game. I said that pretty clearly seven years ago, and I'm saying it again now. Again, Christine Flowers with some words about words. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Be sure to check out the Together PDX website for more information about events that are coming up in the next few weeks here this summer in the Portland metro area, togetherpdx.org. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.